You all hear the thunder this morning? Yeah? Brings back childhood memories growing up in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Don't get much thunder and lightning out here, but when we do, it's always pleasant. Not for the animals, of course, but (laughs) for us who understand what's going on. Well, today we're blessed to have you with us, and and, uh, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're weaving our way through this book, and uh, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. One thing you realize that um, in any walk of life, um, when you run across people, people love praise, and generally they hate criticism. Wouldn't you agree with that? That's just our nature, right? Um, that's why I think we either fear being in front of a crowd or some people actually crave it. <laughs> they, they desire it. They like that attention. It's why some folks check their Facebook a dozen times a day to see who has liked their posts or maybe who hasn't. <laughs> um, it's why, unfortunately, verbal bullying drives kids teenagers, even to suicide. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but someone said a critical word can break our hearts. And in this passage, Paul addresses both his fans and his critics in this church in Corinth. Um, And before we read the passage this morning, I just want to take a few moments to remind us where we've been in the book. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he's the one who founded this church in Corinth. This is a diverse commercial city, Corinth was. It was on a busy Roman uh, trading route on this narrow strip of land between two seas. And he went to Corinth because the Lord led him there, and he preached initially, as always was his custom, in the synagogues. And some of them, some of the Jews got saved, Most of them kicked him out. And then he would go to the Gentile population, and he would preach there. And in Acts 18, we realize that Paul moves on to Corinth from his previous ministries where Silas and Timothy eventually rejoin him some months later. And for 18 months, a year and a half, Paul stays with Aquila, who is a a Jew from the Roman province of Pontus in Asia Minor, and his wife, Priscilla. And they've recently fled Rome because the emperor Claudius uh, basically kicked out all the Jews in AD 49. And as they, like Paul, they were tent makers. Uh, They made tents. They made other leather articles from um, a a feather, a felted goat-like material that originates over there around the area of Tarsus. And so Paul works with this couple in the marketplace, the Agora there, making and repairing awnings and shelters, probably to protect the people from the hot Mediterranean heat and sun. And and when Paul meets opposition from some Jews in the synagogue, what does he do? He preaches next door to the home of Justice, a Gentile believer. 
And, and some Jews and Gentiles were saved as a result of his preaching, and hence the church in Corinth was born. So he stayed there 18 months, discipling, teaching um, this new growing body of believers in this busy, business, diverse city. But after 18 months, the Lord led Paul to move on and head to Ephesus and continue to preach the gospel of Christ. And after Paul left Corinth, this church, there was an individual pastor by the name of Apollos came and continued the pastoral ministry of teaching and and discipling this young group of believers in this church in Corinth. Well, Paul's removed from Corinth now, but he gets a letter. He gets information. Somebody sends him a, I was going to say a text, but (laughs) they didn't do that back then, a letter and, and writes to him concerning the Corinthian church that he gave birth to, that he saw the Lord give birth to there. And he writes back to them because they raised several issues that were rising up in this church, in this young church. And they thought, let's just go to the founder. We'll go to the guy who was here when it all started and let him know what's going on with some of these people. And so he writes back to the church of Corinth because he couldn't just hop on a bus and get there. Uh, He writes a letter, and he sends a letter to them, several letters actually, and this is one of the letters, 1 Corinthians. And see, among the many problems that the church of Corinth needed to be addressed by Paul, overwhelmingly the main problem was divisions within their body, divisions within the Corinthian church. And these divisions had basically two sources. And we've gone through this in chapters 1 and 2 as we've gone through this book. We've seen where Paul has addressed the tendency of some of these new Christians that were saved, maybe from a pagan background, maybe they were involved in commerce in the city, whatever. Well, what they did is they got saved, and then they brought into the church the philosophies of the world and the human wisdom, which Paul, in his own words, considers foolishness. The human wisdom that is foolish is in the area of spiritual truth. This is what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about the guy that fixes your car or the person that balances your, your checking account or your, does your taxes or, or you know anything like that. We can get and learn and grow from the knowledge that some people have without any special enlightenment enlightenment from God. You can go to college and learn how to be a doctor without any enlightenment from God. You can go and learn how to be a mechanic without any enlightenment from God. Where human wisdom and the the worldly philosophy of this age becomes foolish and useless is in the matters where it concerns God where it concerns something spiritual, where it concerns salvation, where it concerns our origins, where it concerns spiritual truth. See, human wisdom has no way of discovering and understanding divine things left by itself. And it has absolutely no place or bearing on spiritual matters in Christ's church. And I'd also say this, Christians, as Christians, we don't have a right to have our own opinions about the things God has revealed to us. We don't have a right to do that. Now, a lot of us do it all the time, but it's not right. See, when Christians start 
expressing and following their own ideas about the gospel, the church, Christian living, whatever, you can't help but have the saints become divided. That's just what happens. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. Christians are no wiser in their flesh than unbelievers are in theirs. (laughs) So the first step in a Christian's truly becoming wise is to recognize that in his own human wisdom, there's foolishness. A reflection of the wisdom of this world, which is really, Paul says it, foolishness before a holy God. It's really the product of intellectual pride, and it's the enemy of what God has revealed to us in Scripture. And it's one of the goals of the church, it should be one of the goals, it's one of the goals of this church to create an atmosphere in which the Word of God is honored, the Word of God is submitted to, the Word of God is held high with respect, in which human opinion is never used to judge or qualify God's revelation. As far as the things of God are concerned, Christians must be totally under the umbrella of the teaching of Scripture and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Only then can we be open to having God's wisdom and truly becoming wise. And see, it's that common commitment, brothers and sisters, to the Word of God that is this basic unifier of the church of Christ. These new believers in Corinth here began to trust in human wisdom. They began to pull this stuff into the church and worldly philosophy rather than trust in the Christ, the cross of Christ. The second source, that was the first source, human wisdom, worldly wisdom, Worldly philosophy was creeping into the church of division. The second source of division in the Corinthian church, in part, was due to the allegiances to Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. Because people were carrying their own opinions about things, they began to follow certain leaders within the Corinthian church. And we saw where some say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. They started their own little clans within the body of Christ. And whenever that happens, it can't help but be divisive. And so some Corinthian Christians began to become critical of Paul because they thought, well, you know, he's not as eloquent as Apollos. He doesn't share the same kind of wisdom. Maybe his presence wasn't that of a Peter. And we see the problem reflected Throughout these letters, First and Second Corinthians, um, in, in verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul started early, earlier here that Christ had sent him to do what? To preach the good news. And then he says this, not in wisdom of words. <laughs> he tells us in Acts, in, tells us in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, that he, Paul, stands in stark contrast to their second pastor, Apollos. And it it calls him, in Acts 18, an eloquent man came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the Scriptures, speaking of Apollos. Paul said in 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, we saw this in verses 4 and 5. He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul is kind of laying down the gauntlet here in this letter. Later in this letter, Paul will actually defend his ministry. He gets to the point where the criticism gets so bad he has to defend his ministry to these people in Corinth. And he does that throughout chapter 9. If you jump ahead and read chapter 9, that's what you say. That's what you see. He speaks of those who examine me or those who judge me. In his letter to the Corinthian church a little later on here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he acknowledges this. He says that people are saying this about his teaching. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. (laughs) This is the Apostle Paul they're talking about. He will also say in 2 Corinthians 11, 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. See, to people who treasure sophistication, wisdom, eloquence, and charisma, Paul's lack of these qualities basically constituted flaws. And that's why some of the Corinthian Christians have, in a way, rejected his leadership. They said, hey, I'm going to follow Apollos. I'm not going to follow Paul. Apollos is much easier to listen to. And so in our text today, Paul is writing not so much to defend his work. He does that in chapter 9. But he wants to refocus their attention. That's his desire here. He wants to refocus their attention, which was drawn to the strengths and weaknesses of those who serve them as their pastors. He said, you're focusing on the wrong thing. He said, stop focusing on the strengths and weaknesses of those who serve you as your pastors, but you need to focus on the cross of Christ. See, the spiritual rule of a pastor, of a minister, of an elder, is likened unto a shepherd. We see that throughout Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Peter gives us an exhortation here. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he says this in verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Today, we need to realize in our churches that we as shepherds should never desire to become the focal point of the sheep's attention. We serve only as examples. (laughs) We are only examples of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now before we read our text, I want to quote Pastor John MacArthur about this aspect of looking at pastors in a wrongful way. Because we do it all the time. 
Um, and so he, he speaks to this in an article. He says this. He says, a popular game played by many Christians is that of evaluating pastors. All kinds of criteria are used to determine those who are most successful, the most influential, the most gifted, the most effective. Some magazines periodically make surveys and write up extensive reports, carefully ranking the pastors by church membership, attendance of worship services, sizes of the church staff and Sunday school, academic and honorary degrees, books and articles written, number of messages given at conferences and conventions, and so on and so on. As popular as the practice may be, it is exceedingly offensive to God. 1 Corinthians desires, Paul desires to focus their attention on things like that back to what really matters. And this is what he says here. And we can read the text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, Paul says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgments before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, in this text, Paul sets forth some basic guidelines. And we entitled the message today, Ministers and Ministry. And it's not just meant for someone who's a pastor or an elder, because we're all called to serve the body of Christ. We're all ministers. We're all servants to the body of Christ. So I'm drawing from a broader application here, not just to elders or pastors who do that for a living, but also for everyone who's in the church of Christ. It really deals with the congregation's attitude toward those who serve, those who serve them, the minister. And it also deals with the minister's attitude toward himself, which is probably even more important. It really gives us God's perspective on his servants. And Paul makes that clear that, you know what, popularity, personality, degrees after your name, numbers, all that play no role whatsoever in the Lord's perspective. And they shouldn't play any role in ours. The main point of the passage here concerns these divisions that arose within the church. And it arose over different people ministering at different times. It wasn't the leader's fault. It was the people who were coming to the church that were making these divisions. See, the message is that the servants of God should not be ranked at all by others or by themselves. That's what Paul is trying to get across to us. The main point is that they're true to Scripture in their preaching and that their living should be treated equally. And that will require that they quit judging their pastors, congregations quit judging their pastors and leave such judgments to God. 
who can be trusted to judge faithfully. Now, where there is sound doctrine, personal holiness, there's no justification to rank God's servants. We're all on an equal playing field. But where those two things are missing, doctrine, sound doctrine, and personal holiness, then there has to be evaluation. There has to be confrontation. Paul's not saying don't judge anybody ever. He would never tell them not to judge unsound doctrine. They're to be careful. Listen only to the truth. Reject the false and factious and test the spirits. That's what he calls us to do as a church. He's definitely not telling them not to call sin, sin. There's some churches that won't even use the word sin today because it's offensive to people. Of course we're to judge sin as sinful within the body of Christ. And we're to judge and make judgment about that and correct it and encourage one another. The kind of judging here that Paul is opposed to that this congregation was making amongst their leaders really was the kind of judging that relies on human intuition or rumor or personal preference. Such judging is the sort of thing that we do when we judge the motives of another person's heart. And we've all done it. We've all gone there. I can't tell you the amount of times I've told my wife, you know, you just did that to irritate me. (laughs) Really, how do you know that? How do you know what her motivation was when she just did that? But we say things like that. Are you intended to hurt me? See, sometimes it seems that people behave in one way or another just to kind of yank our chain. Would you agree with that? I mean, we run into people like that all the time. But the truth be known, most of those people are probably totally self-absorbed, and they don't even consider anyone else at all. Even though their conduct may be obnoxious or offensive to us, they had no real evil intent behind it. Unpleasant behavior often may have had no awareness that it was or could be obnoxious at all. Declaring the intentions of someone to be evil, unless they actually come to you and say, yeah, I did that and I wanted to and I wanted to hurt, you know, unless they actually did that, we have no business attributing to them evil intentions. See, that's the kind of judging here that Paul is forbidding. And really, even when their motives are clearly evil and they have a wicked agenda, God would have us ignore that fact and refuse to judge and leave the judgment where? In the hands of God. Where there's sound doctrine and personal holiness, there should be no judgment. However, where those two essentials are missing, you have to have evaluation. You have to have confrontation. He says so in Romans 16. He says in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. 1 Timothy 5.20 As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all 
so that the rest may stand in fear. I mean, I'm so thankful that I can be part of a church where this is not the case. And so we need to understand God's purpose for his servants. And Paul gives us here three things. They're in your outline there. First of all, the minister's identity. The minister's identity. Who is this minister? Look at what he says in verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, in the context, he's referring to him as an apostle and the other leaders there in the Corinthian church who were involved in pastoral ministry. But like I said, this is, by extension, all other fellow workers. And so it's important that we realize this applies to all of us as believers, not just somebody who's an elder or a pastor. So this is how one should regard us. The us refers back to chapter 3, verse 22, where he indicates that Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, and by extension everybody else, how should they regard us? This is how one should regard us. One is a nonspecific reference, first of all, that applies to all Christians. How do other Christians regard us? That's really what he's saying here. But in a wider sense, it also may even refer to unbelievers, those outside the church. How do they regard us? And not so much how the world should regard God's ministers, but also to how the church should portray God's ministers before the world. I mean, there's some churches that worship their pastors, literally. They can do no wrong. And that is portrayed to a lost world. That's not healthy. An unbeliever cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. We're told that in verse 14 of chapter 2. But at the same time, Christians should not parade kind of worldly standards of ministry before unbelievers, thinking somehow that's going to make their pastors or their churches look better or more inviting. See, we have no right to use worldly criteria, such as popularity or personality or degrees or how many people, to make the gospel seem more appealing. That's not what we should do. We should not try to make the world see God's humble messengers as anything other than what God has ordained them to be. And that's what he says here. What are they? They're servants of Christ. They're servants of Christ. That word servants there means under rowers. It's the lowest galley of slaves in a boat. It's the ones rowing at the bottom tier of the ship where all the stench and filth is. No fresh air. They're the ones that are the most menial, unenvied, and despised of slaves. I mean, from that meaning, the term came to refer to subordinates of any sort, to those who are under the authority of another. And what he's trying to get them to see is, you know what? If they're a servant of Christ... 
Christian ministers are first and foremost, above all else, just that, servants of Christ. In everything, they are, in everything they are to be subordinate and subject to him, to Christ, to his word. They're called to serve men in Christ's name. But they cannot serve men rightly unless they serve their Lord rightly. They cannot serve him rightly unless they see themselves rightly. As his underslaves, as his underrowers, as his menial servants. Today in our culture, in some cultures, when people find out you're in ministry or you're a pastor or you're an elder, it's almost like, I mean, you can see the way they, they, they just change. Their whole demeanor changes. So we have to be careful how we first view ourselves and then also how we view our servants among us. Uh, the idea that, that preaching should be addressed to the self-perceived, self-perceived needs of the congregation is really part of the evangelical church nowadays. That's, that's what most churches are involved with. Many churches today see it's the desire of the pastoral staff to meet the felt needs of their congregation. That's what their goal is. And the argument behind that is what they call missiological. Just preach to the needs people already feel, and then you can point them to a deeper need in God's provision through the gospel. To look first of all at man's needs is to fail men as well as to fail the Lord. (laughs) That's not where we should be starting. Al Mohler in an article points this out. He points out some of the flaws of this kind of mentality. He says, in the first place, our needs are hopelessly confused, even hidden from us. As a matter of fact, the knowledge of our deepest needs is a secret even to ourselves until we receive that knowledge by the work of the Holy Spirit and the gift of Scripture. This is God's mercy, that we should come to discover our most basic need. Second, he says, our perceived or felt needs are almost always, they almost always turn out to be something other than needs. (laughs) At least in any serious sense. We have wants, we have desires and concerns, but most of those are not genuine needs that lead to desperation. The kind of needs that remind us constantly that we lack all self-sufficiency. To the contrary, most of us feel quite self-sufficient. Thus, the needs we feel are the needs characteristic of apathetic affluence, romantic aspirations, and spiritual emptiness. Third, he says, preachers who believe they can move the attention of individuals from their felt needs to their need for the gospel will find inevitably that the distance between the individual and the gospel has not been reduced by attention to lesser needs. 
He writes, the sinner's need for Christ is a need like all other needs. And the satisfaction of having other needs stroked and affirmed is often a hindrance to the sinner's understanding of the gospel. Jesus doesn't meet our needs, he says. He rearranges them. He cares very little about most things that I assume are my needs. And he gives me needs I would never have had if I hadn't met Jesus. He reorders our needs. And so when he says that, what he's saying is the minister who becomes occupied, the pastor who becomes occupied with with just counseling and helping his congregation and community and spend all this time doing that and little time in the Word of God, he's really unable to meet anybody's needs, especially their deepest needs, because he's really neglected his greatest resource for correctly knowing and adequately meeting those needs, the Word of God. And unfortunately, that's what you see today in most modern-day churches. It's not the sermon that's the highlight of the, mess, of, this, of the service. It's the music, or it's the play, or it's the video, or whatever. And then they try to squeeze a, a pastor's teaching in there somewhere. And that usually leads to compromising God's truth for the sake of people's desires. See, before all else, a pastor, a servant, an elder has to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 19, you have to serve the Lord with all humility. Then and only then can you actually serve people. Paul, even though he was an apostle, he considered himself to be a galley slave to his Lord, a servant. And he wanted everyone else to consider him and all of God's ministers as just that. Galley slaves. They were not exalted one above the other. They were all in the literally same boat. They all had a common rank, the lowest. They had the hardest labor, the cruelest punishment, the least appreciation, and in general, the most hopeless existence of all slaves. And that's why Paul wrote in chapter 3, you remember in verse 5, he says, what is then Apollos? What is Paul? They're mere servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. See, a minister of Christ can be useful only as he gives opportunity and power to the Lord to work through him. That's what he said in verse 7 of chapter 3. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is what? anything. They're nothing. They're nothing. But it's God who causes the growth. Luke speaks of the servants of the the word in in Luke chapter 1 verse 2. To serve Christ is to serve his word, which is the revelation of his will to us. Someone said Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. See, a servant of Christ 
must also be a servant and a galley slave of Scripture. You can't have it any other way. His function is to obey God's commands as revealed in his word. That's what Paul says in chapter 9, verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. He says, for woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. His preaching the gospel was no cause for boasting or praise. He's only doing his duty. Just as his master had commanded. I mean, when you think about it, it wasn't even Paul's idea to become a Christian. Much less to preach the gospel. I mean, this guy was dead set on killing Christians. Before the Lord stepped in on the Damascus Road. Paul then saw was the furthest possible person you would say, oh, that guy's going to be a pastor one day. No, I don't think so. And in his second letter to Corinth, Paul describes in some detail what the life of a minister of God looks like. Turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Lest we think it's some kind of a celebrated profession. Second Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That's what it is to be a servant of Christ. It's a paradox. You go from one extreme to the other, constantly. The minister of God cannot depend on his own appearance before other men. Because their their opinions change. They vary. They're never reliable. A servant's obedience should be to his master alone, and his desire should be to please the master alone. Paul sought only to do that which the Lord called him to do. And his calling was to preach the word of God, Colossians 1.25, to take the word and give it out. And in that he was faithful in every way. And God's ministers are not called to be creative, but they're called to be obedient. They're not called to be innovative, but they're called to be what? Faithful. So we're servants, but we're also stewards of God's ministries. He uses that word back in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, ministers of the gospel are also stewards of the mysteries of God. That word, steward, in the Greek it means house manager, a person placed in complete control of a household. The stewards supervise the, the property, the fields, the vineyards, 
the finances, the food. And the other servants on behalf of his master. That's what his role was. He was a steward of all that. And Peter speaks of all Christians being stewards of the manifold grace of God in 1 Peter 4.10. The minister must be above reproach as God's steward, Titus 1.7 tells us, because he's entrusted with proclaiming the mysteries of God. That word mystery, it's used in the New Testament, is that which was hidden and can be known only by divine revelation. This isn't something you just discover on your own. It has to be revealed to us through divine revelation. And as a steward of God's mysteries, a minister is to take the revealed word of God and give it out to God's household. That's one of the things they're called to do. He's to dispense all of God's word, holding nothing back. In Acts, Paul told the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, declaring to you the whole purpose of God. That will be profitable. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is profitable. See, the problem with the churches today, there's so many Christians who are malnourished in their spiritual lives. Because there's so many preachers dispensing an unbalanced, unhealthy diet of biblical truth. I mean, what they preach may be scriptural, but they don't preach the full counsel, the whole purpose of God. They preach what they want to preach. They preach, which is even more dangerous, what they feel the people need to hear. I never want to be in the business of deciding what you need to hear as a congregation, because there's no way I could ever know that. That's why we teach through books of the Bible. Because I figure if we teach through a book of the Bible, we've got to cover the book. If we stop at verse 1, we're picking up at verse 2 next. It's real easy. You know where we're going. I know where we're going. Sometimes I don't want to go there. I look at the verse and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Really? i got to preach on this now at this time? This is a little uncomfortable. This is a little unnerving. But you know what? This is what it is. And I constantly fight against the temptation to say, maybe I could just kind of not say anything about that verse. (laughs) There was an article in a magazine of a well-known pastor, and he said this, I decided that the pulpit was no longer to be a teaching platform, but an instrument of spiritual therapy. I no longer preach sermons. I create experiences. I don't have time to write a systematic theology to give a solid theological basis for what I intuitively know, what I intuitively believe is right. Every sermon has to begin with the heart. If you ever hear me preaching, he goes on, if you ever hear me preaching a sermon against adultery, you'll know what my problem is. If you ever hear me preaching a sermon about the coming of Christ, you'll know that's where 
I am heart wise. So what happens, I'm not hung up on either of those areas, so I've never preached a sermon on either one. I could not in print or in public deny the virgin birth of Christ or the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ or the return of Christ. But when I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it. See, this is the description of a ministry that is totally corrupt and perverted in my mind. And those who listen to someone like that are not hearing anything that God has to say. Rather than bringing men to God's truth, they're really standing between men and God. I mean, God's word is explicit about adultery. He's, it's explicit about the virgin birth of Christ, his second coming. And we're responsible to teach those in the context of Scripture. If we don't, we're going to be what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, those who are like many peddling the Word of God. What do you want to hear? Tell me what you want to hear, because that's what I want to tell you. Because I know that then you'll tell your friends and you'll bring more people because you like what you hear. It's really a cheapened gospel. It's a cheapened Bible. And it's basically... Removing truth from the ears of God's people. The preacher, the, the preacher who disregards Scripture or twists them to support their own ideas or programs adulterates the Word of God. I think we would all agree with that. The cults do that all the time. They use Bible doctrines to support their Bible texts to, to support their false doctrines because they take them out of context. See, the Bible is not merely a repository of proof texts for our opinions. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is the repository of God's truth, of which the minister of God is a steward. His concern should not be to please his hearers or to dispense his own views, but as 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, but to be diligent to present himself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. A minister who does not study the word cannot properly teach the word. And once again, this applies to all of us. This applies to our Sunday school teachers. If you're not putting in due time studying what you're going to be teaching them on Sunday morning, yeah, Sunday morning, yeah they may give you a pass, the kids, but God won't. That's an opportunity you have to instill truth into the hearts and lives of these young ones. And I pray that you put in the time needed to discern that truth. You can't handle accurately that which you do not know. Secondly, the minister's requirement. He says in verse 2 here, more it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they be found faithful. By far the most important quality of a good servant, of a good steward, is faithfulness, is trustworthiness. He's entrusted with his master's households, with his possessions. And without faithfulness, he'll ruin both. See, above all, God wants his ministers, his servant stewards, to be found faithful, trustworthy. Pistos is the, the Greek word there. It means faithful. 
God desires that his spiritual ministers be constantly obedient to his word, unwavering in their commitment to be faithful. Note that God requires stewards to be faithful, but not necessarily successful as the world counts success. I mean, Paul was responsible for planting this church in Corinth. But Apollos was responsible for watering it. But they both recognized only God can give the increase. Only God can give it growth. He doesn't require brilliance. He doesn't require cleverness or creativeness or popularity. He can use servants with those qualities, but only faithfulness is absolutely essential. It says it is required. That's what he tells Timothy in 1 Corinthians 4.17. When Paul sent Timothy to minister to the Corinthians because that young man was what? Beloved and faithful, he says. I mean, Paul himself knew that he was completely dependable to preach and teach the word of God. He didn't have to worry about Timothy adulterating the gospel or giving up in confusion. He was faithful in God's calling. In the book of Colossians, Paul mentions two other co-laborers who were outstanding in in their faithfulness, Epaphras and Tychicus. He calls Epaphras beloved fellow bondservant, a faithful servant of Christ. Tychicus, he says, a beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. See, servanthood and stewardship are inseparable from faithfulness. An unfaithful servant or an untrustworthy steward, it's a self-contradiction. Jesus asked in Matthew 24, who then is faithful and sensible Slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. He says, blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. When the Lord returns, the only absolute requirement by which he will judge his servants is faithfulness. Were they true to his commands? God supplies his word. He supplies his spirit. He supplies us with spiritual gifts. He supplies us with his power. And all we're called to do as servants, as ministers, the only thing we can bring to the table by his grace is our faithfulness. The work is demanding, but it's basically simple. It's taking God's word and feeding it faithfully to God's people dispensing the mysteries of God, proclaiming the hidden truths he has made known. There's no glory here. There's no ranking amongst those who serve Christ. The best that any minister can be is faithful. And that's fulfilling the most basic requirement. Well, how do you evaluate a minister? The minister's evaluation, look at verse 3. But with me, he says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. 
In fact, I don't even judge myself, he says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Look at what he says. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Paul begins to deal with the problem of those who ultimately evaluate a minister, a servant of Christ. I mean, everybody pretty much wants to get in this act. It puts a a subtle and constant pressure on the servant of Christ. The first pressure Paul mentions here is congregational evaluation. He does not say it did not matter at how he was judged by the Corinthians. But it mattered very little how they judged him. See, Paul is not suggesting here that a pastor should never listen to others, that they're somehow above everybody else or a servant. It goes, flies in the face of what a servant is. He's not saying that. The minister should always listen to honest evaluations from other elders, from other leadership, even from his own congregation. But sometimes congregational evaluation has its shortcomings. And what Paul is saying here is that no pastor should lay himself open to the whims and the petty wishes of people. If you do, you're going to go nuts. If I had to get up every week thinking what I was going to say was potentially offensive to somebody, I would become totally paranoid. doesn't mean we don't guard our words. We don't always say things the way they should be said. Nobody's perfect in that area. But really what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians, he's saying, you know what, I know what you're thinking about me, and it's not good. But I want you to know that I don't think it's very significant. He's basically saying, I really don't care. He didn't care whether they thought him faithful or unfaithful. Because his ultimate responsibility, to be honest, was not to them. They had not called him. They had not sent him. They had not told him what doctrines to preach. Nor was he their steward. He was what? He was the steward of God. A minister answers ultimately to Christ, not to men. Stuart Briscoe identifies three kinds of congregational pressure. And I'll just read you what he said. I thought it was pretty good. First of all, there's adulation, which swells the head. (laughs) Causing many ministers to believe that all the nice things people say about them. And then, secondly, there's manipulation, in which people try to manipulate the pastor by force. He writes, every local congregation has its power structure. There are people who seek to influence the preaching and teaching by iron-fisted authoritarian bullying, by stopping all giving to the church, by threatening to leave the church, by persisting, persistent hounding and complaining. There are many things a congregation can do to put pressure on a minister to stop him from being a servant and steward. 
Whenever a pastor begins to listen to the crowd, he is in trouble. Whenever he begins to pass over unpleasant doctrines or spiritual subjects, he knows will cause controversy with the power structure. He destroys himself and the spiritual life of his congregation. Manipulation puts a harness on a pastor and ties his hands so that he cannot be effective. Many a man has left ministry because he ran up against power, the power structure of the local church. Instead of quitting, the pastor should stay and be faithful, be a faithful servant and steward, knowing God will take care of him. You know, I thank God every day for this church because this church has never done that, and I pray it never will. They have always allowed me the freedom to preach the Word of God in the way that I do. And that is such a blessing. It's just such a blessing. And I pray that I'm faithful to that task. Thirdly, he talks about antagonism. It's the last form of pressure applied by a congregation on a minister, he says. This is outright sharp, open-faced opposition, which may take the form of open rebellion or a whispering campaign. He says this, adulation swells the head, manipulation ties the hands, and antagonism breaks the preacher's heart. Paul was not bragging or placing himself above other ministers or above any other Christians. What he said about his own attitude toward himself should be said by every minister in every Christian. It should be a very small thing to any of us when our ministry or our spiritual life is criticized or praised, whether by fellow Christians or, he says, even by any human court. It's irrelevant. Now, we can benefit greatly from the counsel of the wise, maybe a spiritual friend, Sometimes even from the criticism of unbelievers. But no human being is qualified to determine the legitimacy, the quality, or the faithfulness of our work for the Lord. And that doesn't go for pastors. That goes for all you who serve Christ. We're not qualified to determine those things on our own. Matters of outward sin, that's a different story. 1 Timothy 5 indicates that we should carry out judgment and correction. But apart from the discipline of a sinning servant, we can make no obvious, accurate judgment as to the faithfulness of heart, mind, and body of any servant of God. That word judged and judged there means to investigate, to question, to examine. It does not mean to determine guilt or innocence, which is a lot of times what we do when we sit in judgment of others. The phrase there, human court, really means, literally, the language means human day. A day in human court. That's what it's talking about. No human being or group of human beings is qualified to examine or evaluate God's servants. No Christian, and this is the context here, especially God's ministers, should be concerned about any such evaluation because only God knows the truth. So you have the evaluation of others. You know, we shouldn't be offended when people criticize us. We shouldn't show false modesty when they praise us. We should simply say with Paul, 
2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Our focus should not be on individuals, beloved. It should be on Christ. I mean, we know that we're being transformed into his image because he says we are. Not because of what we can see in someone else's life or what you can see in my life. A caring minister of Christ should not be insensitive to the feelings and needs and opinions of his people. A sincere word of appreciation after a sermon is encouraging. It reflects, wow, something spiritual is happening in this person's life. And a word of helpful criticism can be needed in times of correction and even be a blessing. But no minister can remain faithful to his calling if he lets his congregation or those whom he teaches or any other human beings decide how true his motives are or whether he is working within the Lord's will. Because their knowledge and their understanding of the facts are imperfect, just like mine are of yours. Their criticism and compliments are imperfect. And so in humility and love, God's minister must not allow himself to care about other people's evaluations of his ministry. And sometimes, even from the mouth of babes, those of you who teach Sunday school, maybe this has happened to you. You've down there taught well, we like teacher so-and-so. You know, we, we don't want you today. I mean, boy, what do you mean? You don't have to listen to that. That's not important. The important thing is, are you serving Christ? And then you have your own evaluation, not others, but your own evaluation. And, boy, you've you got to be careful here, too. You start studying your own navel, pretty much you're all messed up. You know, you can look at yourself through rose-colored glasses and realize, oh, everything's great. Or you can put yourself down constantly. And that's not helpful either. I mean, you can't trust your own judgment is what Paul is saying because it's imperfect. I think spiritual introspection can be very dangerous. Now, if there's something sinful in your life, obviously you have to face that, confess it, move on. But no, no Christian really, even no matter how mature they are or advanced in the faith, is properly able to evaluate their own spiritual life. Because pretty soon what happens? We start ranking ourselves. We start classifying ourselves. We start looking at other people, and we just look at what we see, and we say, oh, I wish I could be like them, or I wish I could be like this. And the bias in our own favor and the tendency of, of the flesh towards self justification makes it a very dangerous project. I mean, Paul looked at his own life and he said, you know what, I'm not aware of anything against myself. It's not that you don't examine yourself. We're called to do that whenever we have communion. We're called to do that each and every day. But he knew he could be wrong in that assessment. Even as an apostle, he could be wrong about his own heart. It was him who said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, that he needed to remember to take heed when he stood, lest he too should fall. 
See, this isn't about a pastor or a servant, a minister lifting them up above everybody else and saying, I'm better than anybody. That's exactly the opposite. He says there, yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, what he's saying is I'm not justified by this. That word means to be found just or righteous. It means to be not guilty. He says, I'm not aware against anything about myself, but that doesn't even get me off the hook. Because I, I, I am not a perfect person that can evaluate these things. So he's saying my own evaluation, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, it doesn't really matter. The only evaluation that really matters to any of us, beloved, is in the end when we stand face to face to the Lord. And that's what he says, who will judge him? It is the Lord who judges me. Perino is usually the the word for judging. And here, it's anacrino, which kind of intensifies the examination. It's not just a simple examination. It's a real roll-up-your-sleeves examination. And only his examination counts. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, be diligent to present yourself approved to others, to the congregation, to your mommy. No, to God. Be diligent to, approve, to make yourself approved to God. He was not concerned about presenting himself to others for approval or even to himself for approval, only to the Lord. See, and that's where, as a servant, you can only serve people spiritually when you are a faithful servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. And the last evaluation there he mentions is God's evaluation. Verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light all the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation, commendation from the Lord, from God. See, God has a day planned, beloved, when he will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives or the purposes of men's hearts. See, those two phrases there really talk about attitudes of the inner man. I don't know what you're thinking right now, but God does. You don't know what I'm thinking right now, but God does. See, ultimate judgment of every kind, including the evaluation of his servants' ministries, will be by him and in his time. God's people, including the the ministers themselves, have no business passing judgment before that time. This speaks to every one of us. Paul speaks here of each man's praise, each man's commendation. Now, this doesn't refer things hidden in the darkness. It's not referring to sins. Some people misread that. Oh, it's talking about all the sins. No, I mean, I'm sure that our life is a myriad of sins in different ways at different times in our lives. He's not talking about that but simply to things presently unknown to us. He's not talking about anything evil. Because the passage emphasizes that every believer will have what? Praise. No matter what his works, no matter what his motives, no matter what his purpose, because there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 
See, all Christians, this is good news, will have some reward, will have some praise in the end. Some will receive much, and some will receive little, but only God knows. It's like we talked about before, those who are building with wood, hay, and straw, or gold, silver, and precious stone. We don't know. But the rewards will be given. And it will be based on one thing and one thing alone. It says there the purposes or the motives of our hearts. What's that mean? That means the secret thoughts. Why do we do what we do? I mean, one of the marvelous experiences I think that we'll have on that day will be to realize that many dear saints, completely unknown to the world, and perhaps hardly known to other fellow believers, will receive reward after reward after reward from the Lord's hands because their works were of gold, silver, and precious stone. Their hearts will have been pure, their works will have been precious, and the rewards will be great. Because God is rewarding according to the purposes of a man's, a man's heart. I mean, that's what our purpose should be, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul, or 10, 31, Paul points this out. Whether then we eat or we drink, or whatever we do, what does he say? We should do all for what? For the glory of God. That motive should determine everything We think everything we do. It's good when fellow Christians can speak well of us sincerely. It's good when our own conscience does not accuse us. But it will be beyond belief on that day when our Lord can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. See, Paul's purpose here is to show that because all ministers are no more than servants and stewards, because neither we nor they can properly evaluate the value or worth of their ministry, and because God alone can and will give the proper estimate in a future reckoning day, it is not only destructive, But it is ridiculous to cause divisions in the church by arguing over who is the most honored servant. Because Jesus alone is our judge. And because of that, we can say with Paul, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In Christ, beloved, we are free from performance concerns when it comes to serving. Fans and critics are our service opportunities, not our judges. Therefore, when we are praised, we serve. When we are criticized, we serve. When our Facebook posts are liked a hundred times, we serve. When everybody unfriends us, we serve. 
When no one notices us, we serve. When we receive a standing ovation, we serve. When we're booed, we serve. When embarrassed, we serve. When socially anxious, we serve. When bullied, we serve. When misunderstood, we serve. This is how one should regard us as servants. Human judgment is premature and superficial. Therefore, it's insignificant. Jesus is our judge. So I would encourage you all, let's serve him together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Paul's instruction on this matter. It's something we all need to hear because we're all swayed by our fans or our critics. And Lord, it's good to know that our focus should not be on that, but it should be on our faithfulness to you and your word. And Lord, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the people that make up this church. That the emphasis here is on the right thing. And Lord, we just thank you for the many servants that you have provided here at Grace Bible Church. And really the hungry hearts for the teaching of your word. That they can grow and be nurtured in their spiritual lives. Lord, we can't help to believe that maybe there's someone here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Maybe they are still carrying the burden of their sin. Maybe they haven't come to you and expressed that desire to be saved. Lord, only you can answer that prayer. We, we really can't do anything. We can pray for them, but we can't do anything for them other than that. And yet, Lord, if you're speaking to their heart this morning, if you've shown them their own sinfulness, and your word is clear, we're all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one person in this building who has not ever sinned, told a lie, or taken something. And so, Lord, we all stand guilty before you. And because of your love, you have provided an answer for our need of forgiveness. You provided the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross, lived a perfect life here on earth, went to the cross, gave up his life for ours. And when he died on that cross, Jesus placed upon him all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him for salvation. And even though he had never committed one sin, he was perfect because he was God. You laid upon him all of the sins of all those who would come to you in faith. And you provided a way of salvation. And as the man in the New Testament beat his chest and lowered his eyes and just cried out to heaven, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from this burden of sin that I'm carrying. God will answer that prayer when it's a prayer that's prayed in faith, believing that Christ lived and died and was resurrected on your behalf for your salvation. And you cry out to him for salvation, he'll answer that prayer. It'll make you a new creation in Christ. Old things will pass away. All things will become new. Father, we pray for us as believers as we leave here that we would just continue to hunger for your word. That we would not prejudge others. Lord, it's so easy to do, to question others' motives. We have no idea what other people are thinking. Only you do. Guard our hearts, guard our minds, guard our mouths, our lips. Lord, that we would really 
know what it means to pray for each other, to support each other through hard times, through good times, through bad. Whatever may be the case, Lord, I pray that the body of Christ would be united around Christ and his word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.